All I ever wanted was to sing to God. He gave me that longing and then made me mute. Why? If he didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire like a lust in my body and then deny me the talent? What's it all about? My aquatic jerk. Moby Dick is one of the great failure stories of all time. Man chases whale, man tries to kill whale, whale kills man. It's a classic, and I'm sorry if I've spoiled it for anyone who hasn't read it yet. But did you know that it wasn't seen that way until after Herman Melville died? In his lifetime, Moby Dick never sold out its 3,000 print run, and Melville ended up working as a customs agent. Poor Herman never gets to know how much respect he won. It's all stuck ahead of him in time. We who love his work can't help but send him our thanks, like little kids putting stamps on letters to Santa Claus. And it hurts us to imagine Melville crying in a dark, soundproof booth while just outside a parade in his honor marches by. I hope he took some satisfaction in what he made. He must have, right? You can't do something that good and not take pleasure in it. Every good line must have felt like a victory. For all his frustrations, he still got to be the vessel for something amazing. He must have known that on some level. I hope so. For aspiring authors, it's sad to think we might actually succeed at writing something great and still have no career. But of course, while we have no career, it's very nice to think, I'm just ahead of my time. Future generations will love me. I'm Daniel Kaufman. Welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. Today we're going to talk about failure, how the fear of it gets in our way, and how we see it in the rear view. We'll hear from Corey McLaughlin, who wrote a new biography about the author of A Confederacy of Dunces that really dismantles the popular mythology. He turned off the side of the road and ran a garden hose from his exhaust pipe into his window. We'll talk with Jane Ann Staw, who wrote a book about writer's block. But you're saying that because you want to win this argument. No! <laughs> Comedian Jimmy Pardo opens up about a disappointing time on The Tonight Show. I'm in my head, they're going to put some laughs in here. There's yeah. no way they're going to let this happen on television. A new episode of Plane Crash Follies, and much more. I hope I do a good job. idea, Charlie Brown. If you win, it'll show everybody that you're not a boring loser. Maybe you're right, Linus. You go out for the spelling bee. Charlie Brown, you'll just make a fool of yourself. You're bound to be a complete failure. Here's how much we hate failure. It makes doing nothing attractive. That's why we don't put pen to paper. That's why we often don't say hi to a beautiful stranger, because zero is there, voluptuous, soft, no sharp corners, saying, sit back, saying, 
Even if you're capable of good writing, which you may just be kidding yourself to think, good writing will happen without you. Let other people do it. Let other people open themselves to criticism. Some of them will succeed, and you'll get to enjoy those sweet fruits of their labor. We are all one, right? One great throbbing mass of life, right? So, why shouldn't this little piece of life just enjoy itself while other parts make the art? If some of us don't sit in the audience, then what's the point of anyone getting on stage? Most of us buy this to some degree. Enough to do nothing, but hardly ever enough to enjoy it. And why not? Because of hope. Hope lays on the guilt. Hope says, if you just push yourself harder, you might do something great. We're stuck. But are these bars made of fear or dreams? Good luck with your creative design. Nobody asked you, but fine. Here's a chance. Corey McLaughlin is the author of a new biography of John Kennedy Toole called Butterfly and the Typewriter. Confederacy of Dunces is another one of those books that wasn't appreciated in the author's lifetime. If you know anything about it, you probably heard the same story I did, about a guy who was so frustrated by the morons in the publishing industry who kept rejecting him, he killed himself. Then his devoted mother, Thelma, persevered until she found someone with influence to read it, and the book got published and won the Pulitzer. It's a great story. People love to tell it. Here's what really happened. John Kennedy Toole was stationed in Puerto Rico in 1963, and we sat down within a couple of months, cranked out a Confederacy of Dunces. And then he submitted it to Robert Gottlieb at Simon and Schuster, and he was utterly convinced that this book would be published. And Gottlieb and Toole corresponded for about two years. It ended up that Toole quit on the novel. He felt passionate about it, but was convinced that he could not edit it to Gottlieb's satisfaction and tucked it away in a box. And then a few years after that, he fell into depression, was having episodes of paranoia. He got into a fight with his mother, stormed out, quit his job. What was the fight about? No one really knows for sure. His mother very much cared for her son, but was fairly overbearing as well. And here Toole was 31 years old, essentially supporting his parents. His dreams of authorship were not taking hold. And something snapped, but Thelma never conveyed what it was. He gets into his car and um, is gone for two months. And no one knows exactly where he went, the pieces that they put together suggests that he went out to California, and then he went eastward to Georgia to the home of Flannery O'Connor. And then it seems he was heading back to New Orleans, and uh, just outside of New Orleans in Biloxi, Mississippi, he turned off the side of the road and ran a garden hose from his exhaust pipe into his window and um, committed suicide. He did leave a note for his mother, so that might have indicated what the fight was about. But his mother destroyed the suicide note and she would never talk about its contents. And years after that, his mother started sending the novel around to different publishers and she received rejection after rejection. And finally, she decided to do something drastic. She read in the newspaper that Walker Percy was giving a class at Loyola 
And she got up in her best dress and essentially cornered Walker Percy uh, and thrust this manuscript on him. Uh, and he finally read it and loved it. Um, Wasn't the story that he was? He said he was hoping he would hate it on the first page, but he had to. <laughs> yes, he was hoping he wouldn't like it. You know, he glosses over an important part that his wife played. He was exhausted, and he <laughs> he just didn't feel like dealing with it. Uh -huh. And he looked at Bunt Percy and said, "Will you read it and tell me what you think?" And Bunt was thrilled by it. So, what do you think it is about this story that captivates people? The novel or the story? The of story his of his life. You know, I think for aspiring artists, there is a deep sympathy for someone who invested everything he had into his work. And when that didn't work out, it really tore him up inside and may have been a factor in his self-destruction. And then years later, having that same work published and win the Pulitzer Prize is sort of a grand uh, vindication. A cosmic vindication. Yeah, yeah. it's remarkable. <laughs> And this started happening, by the way, as soon as the book came out. Reviewers were quick to construct this narrative where Toole poured himself into his novel. And, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, as soon as he was viciously rejected by the powers of the New York publishing industry, he committed suicide. And that's not really how the story went, but it could serve a purpose for someone who is trying to make sense of something they want to do so badly, but the publishers, or if you're an actor in Hollywood, whatever, they're just not letting you in. So I think that's how many people connect with it. Yeah, the version I had always heard of the story was that he was submitting everywhere and no one would take it. And then he was despondent about that and killed himself. And then his devoted mother took right. up the cause, you know, and it seems like there are all these actual... And, Nuances. you know, the writer wasn't around to explain anything about it. And so what you had is reviewers trying to say something about the writer, but no one really knew anything. A lot of that gelled pretty quickly. And then I think people just like the story that way. It serves some kind of purpose. The purpose being to comfort us or? I think so. Reviewers that were writers were clearly comforted by this notion that they were right and the publishing industry was intrinsically corrupt. Did Gottlieb talk about the book after Toole's death or after the Pulitzer? Did he express regret or anything like that? No, Gottlieb never expressed regret. Thelma blamed Gottlieb directly for the death of her son. So Gottlieb had to pretty quickly go on the defensive, and his line that he maintained was essentially, uh, I'm glad that the book was published and that it's gotten this recognition. I don't think that I had anything to do with the death of Tool, although I'm regretful that it happened. Mm -hmm. And that was a difficult line for him to keep, mainly because this 82-year-old woman right. down in New Orleans... <laughs> Poor little old lady. Yeah, was yeah. slinging these attacks on him, I mean, he had such a career. He has such a career. And he recalled pretty vividly how personally that was frustrating. And some of these things were reprinted in the New York Times. And he just sort of had to say, ah, well, I'm not going to say anything about it. I mean, was he going to do sewer? You know, yeah. And then he'd be even more of him. <laughs> yeah, that's tough because he's, uh, you know, for all the work he's done in his life, he's sort of immortalized as either this villain or just this guy who couldn't recognize obvious talent when the truth is more complicated. Right much more troublesome Thelma's um, accusations against Gottlieb became pretty anti-Semitic. Not just that he killed her son, but she said in, in one interview he was nothing but a Jewish monster. This is a direct quote. Uh. 
Uh, and, so disappointing because uh, the old version of the story I had in my head is so much more pleasing than the truth. Yeah, you know, I hesitate to cast Thelma as a villain too. I mean, I, I'm I not a villain, she... but just not this purely uh, wonderful, oh, right, devoted right. mother. Yeah, you know. yeah. All you need to do is read an actual interview, uh-huh. and you get the sense that she was not this utterly devoted mother that was only trying to redeem her son. Uh, She very much enjoyed the fame she got from the publication of the novel. I don't think that discredits what she did. She did plug the book for years and went through many, many rejections and continued to do it. So she endured in a way that Toole couldn't. But the relationship between Toole and his mother is a very complicated one and I think ultimately troublesome. Yeah, I mean, it just seems with her not releasing the note and their fights, it seems like she may have been motivated by guilt or things other than just devotion. I think that she believed that her son was, from a very early age, destined for greatness. Now, this created a degree of pressure on him. Ah. There's this underlying sense through everything he does that it has to be superior. Mm-hmm. Now, he was not often challenged until Gottlieb. You know, he's a top A student in high school, and he breezes through that. He's considered a really talented scholar at Tulane and breezes through that. He gets his master's degree from Columbia in a year, and he's very successful in the Army. And so Gottlieb saying, you're very talented, but you have to work on this, or this isn't working out. It was, I don't want to say completely new to him, but considering he invested so much in it, it was probably difficult to deal with. Every artist has to deal with rejection. That's just part of it, and a lot of it, a lot of rejection. Yeah. If you're going to do this, you're going to have to develop some tough skin. I don't think he ever developed that, but what was more problematic is that it was coming into the tool home and his mother was getting a hold of the letters and she was ranting against these idiots in new york city that weren't recognizing the genius of her son so interesting that the popular version of the story which is so comforting to people that was being told to tool and it seems like for him it was the opposite of comforting it just made everything worse uh yeah i mean If Gottlieb was writing that many times to me and saying that I was talented, I'd probably just feel pretty good about it. But Gottlieb understood at that point that a humorous novel like Confederacy of Dunces was very difficult to place. And Gottlieb, having come out of Catch-22, knew that Toole was probably limited in what he could do with the novel in terms of bringing it to other publishing houses. So if Toole received Gottlieb's words as the gospel, mm-hmm. he was already probably feeling confined as to, well, if I don't publish this under Gottlieb, under Simon & Schuster, then I can't publish it anywhere. He probably could have gone to a smaller independent press, but he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in a degree of fame, mm-hmm. and that was instilled in him from a very early age, that someone with his talents should never settle. Gottlieb even said hey, maybe you want to try and work on something else, which wouldn't be unusual for a writer. And then maybe return after two or three novels have been published and see what they can do to it. But his novel was almost bound with his self-identity. He could not just move on to something else. This had become him. 
Well, I think that's part of what's so difficult for writers in general when uh, things are rejected, that you completely identify with the piece and see it as not just something you made, it's you. Interestingly, Tool at times admits that he needs to edit it. Now, I don't know if he's just trying to keep up a conversation with Gottlieb. Yeah, so that, I don't know how sincere he is. But their correspondence never became what Thelma said. Thelma called them vitriolic attacks. She claimed that Gottlieb's last words were, this would never sell. And in fact, his last words were something to the effect of, keep going, I'm here for you, I think you're promising. And, you know, that's a very different final note. Yeah. He did say, you know, it really would never sell in its current state is what he was saying. That was maybe a year before they had their final letters. And he says, you're very talented. Send me anything and I'll read it. Which most writers would give anything to get that letter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Right. Gottlieb was pretty much the hot thing in Manhattan publishing. Yeah, I didn't realize that he was the editor of Catch-22. Uh, yeah, Tool had selected Gottlieb. He knew that Gottlieb, if he published something like Catch-22 and Stern, that he'd probably get a confederacy of dunces, which in a lot of ways he did. Mm-hmm. He thought it was very funny. And Gottlieb was the first person he went to? The first and only. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's an amazing success for Tool because he just said, I think this guy's going to get me, and he sends him, and, and he writes him back, and he does get it. Yeah, and it was actually Gottlieb's assistant, Anne Jolette, who noticed the manuscript. She was a Southerner herself, and she thought it was brilliant. So she was the person that sent it up to Gottlieb. So interesting how these stories get simplified and different players get omitted. Yeah, and there was a moment where Tool was just distraught. I think it was after one of Gottlieb's more harsh letters. And so Tool gets into his car and drives up to New York City from New Orleans, shows up unannounced at Simon & Schuster. Gottlieb was not there, and he meets Anne Jolette, and it sounded like he pretty much had a nervous breakdown right there in the offices of Simon & Schuster. Where was this in that two-year span? Right in the middle. Okay. And by the way, we don't know how he edited the manuscript. According to Thelma, she discarded all of the Gottlieb edits Mm -hmm. because she felt that it wasn't the pure genius of her son. Do you think that this two-year process of criticism and editing, did it change Tool's opinion of his work and of himself? Do you think he lost faith in the value of the book, or was he just frustrated with the world not accommodating him? Uh, Wow, that's a hard (laughs) question to answer. We only have these fragments of these little moments that he shared with people. But here's my take on it. We know that his parents were in financial straits. And he's at a point where he needs to decide what he's going to do with his life. So when he gets back and he writes this book, it starts taking hold of his imagination. How perfect it would be if he was published. He could both support his parents and be the writer he always wanted to be. When this started to unravel in his hand, the book clearly wasn't the home run that he thought it was going to be. And that he was still revising it two years later. And then there's this other factor of, I don't know what took hold, but his family had a history of mental illness. And he started having these delusions. He thought that people were after him. He was convinced that Gottlieb stole the ideas of the book and handed them over to another writer. Wow. It's pretty clear that that didn't happen. And... 
I think his world just seemed to be dissolving around him. It's just interesting. I mean, for a lot of writers, the goal is just to finish the manuscript, you know, or to write something that's good. And he did those things. And that just opens you up to another level of potential success or potential failure. They were, he had plenty of achievements, but he also tried to make achievements much more grand than they actually were. For instance, he told his friend he had been offered to be the personal tutor to Yule Brenner's kids. And the sense that comes out is that he was really trying to impress his friend. And he did that to several different people. The funny thing is that when I've talked to those friends, they've said, you know, that he never needed to prove to us that he was talented. Everyone knew he was talented. It sounds like someone who has to go around self-aggrandizing that way is walking around with some kind of a deficit. And that Gottlieb's criticism affirmed every fear he had about himself. There's this great line in one of the Gottlieb letters where Toole says, I know there's problems with the novel, but my greatest fear is that someone points them out to me. Mm. What do you think that line said about him? I think Toole had a very difficult time grappling with criticism. Bobby Byrne is the man um, that pretty much Ignatius is based off of. And they were also friends, and they're sitting and having coffee. And Byrne talks about how Thelma used to praise her son and talk about how he was a genius. And Toole sort of looks puzzled and says, my mother's always talking about my shortcomings. And so there seems to be this dual face. There was a Toole family that was presented on the outside. Mm -hmm. And what happened on the inside is difficult to tell. If she's singing his praises to other people, it reflects well on her. But then when they're alone in private, then she can let loose with the criticism. Yeah. I think that Thelma was very devoted to her son, but sometimes yeah, a mother's devotion, if carried too far, can be crippling. Right. If she's giving him a mixed message on one hand, I expect great things from you. And on the other hand, you're failing in all these ways. I mean, when you talk about how he can't take criticism, when criticism hurts, it's because it feels true, right? Because you believe it on some level. If you feel terrific about yourself, then criticism doesn't really touch you, right? You're just like, oh, they're wrong and right, just go on right. your way. Did you feel sad when the myth was busted for yourself, you know, when you lost that comforting story as you delved into this? <laughs> you know, no, honestly, I always had my suspicion that there was something wrong with the story, the way it was handed down. Yeah, it's just become this comfort for failed writers out there, but it, you could argue it does damage in the world because it's encouraging all these people who really shouldn't be writing to believe this myth about themselves that, uh, that the industry right. just doesn't get me and I'm a genius and one day I'll be appreciated where some people should be giving up and, you know, and moving on to other things. Yeah, and I'm hearing that in the current debate with the publishing industry, certainly. What does it mean to be a writer? If you can self-publish really with not much investment at all in terms of money, what does that do to the body of work? Going through the traditional mode of publishing vets you a bit more. I can attest you go through a lot more steps than... Sure. Although I do think there's a vetting that goes on just if there's a thousand novels self-published out there, you have to rise to the top. The ones that are going to get passed around sure. are going to hopefully be better. Yeah. And you could look back into the 19th century, the early romantics. Many of them were self-publishing as well. And we hold dear to their words. So I don't know. Well, thanks. This was so interesting. And uh, even though you've ruined this wonderful, comforting myth for I'm me. I'm <laughs> sorry. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Lies the neon bar, neon bar.
Jane Anstaw is the author of a great book on writer's block called Unstuck. In this interview, you'll hear me expressing a lot of skepticism and resistance, but I have to say, in the days that followed, the more I thought about the things she talked about, the truer and writer they seemed. I started by asking Jane Ann how we think about failure. Failure feels like rejection. Even when you don't get a manuscript accepted, it feels like rejection. Well, it is rejection, right? Well, it is. But I mean, then you feel personally rejected and you feel, you know, becomes global rejection. Say you've written a novel and it doesn't get accepted. It would be one thing if we could contain it to say, I wrote this novel and actually my agent thought it was lovely, but it didn't get accepted versus it didn't get accepted and I'm a piece of sh- and I- I'm worthless. There's no distinction between the manuscript and yourself. Yeah, that's really why people are afraid of failure. Certainly we care that people like what we write, but you can go further down. You say, nobody likes me. I'm no good. Nobody's going to like me. I'm not going to have any friends. Mm -hmm. So many of the clients I've worked with consider themselves having failed. Many have had many successes in their lives. Some of them had PhDs. Some of them had been teaching at universities. Some of them had even published Some of them had started businesses. No matter how many successes they'd had in their lives, if they had even a small failure at some point that involved writing, Mm -hmm. their success just seemed to evaporate. And I found that my clients' relationships with their writing often mirror their relationships in their family of origin. Anxiety provoked by writing often has nothing to do with the writing itself. It does at times. A lot of us have had teachers who have said we weren't good enough writers, but often that takes hold because of something that precedes it within the family. Right. We've all heard about novelists who have, you know, walls of rejections, and yet they persevere. So there's something that's allowing them to do that, and there's something that's keeping others of us from doing that. So you see the fear of failure as an irrational fear? I don't think that's the deepest fear. Actually, in a great many instances with my clients, it's more that they're afraid that if they succeed, there's somebody who's going to be angry with them. Not the rejection of the manuscript. It's the rejection from the people you care about. That's the theory that you're applying to everyone. I don't apply it. I have extracted it from working with quite a few writers, yeah people encounter obstacles to their writing and they label it fear of failure. They say my writing isn't going to be good enough and they say they're not disciplined. Somebody just said to me this morning, I'm a failure in discipline and that's not what's happening at all. These are people who have an incredibly demanding exercise regime and a very demanding job and a complicated life and they get everything done but they say it's because they don't have enough discipline that they're not writing and it's never that. But it seems so counterintuitive to think it's fear of success generally. I mean, I know, I know yeah. it is. I'm not saying it doesn't feel horrible to fail. Everybody has some fear of failure, but it doesn't necessarily stop us in our tracks. What resonates with me as a fear, what I'm anxious about in my writing, is it being bad. I'm worried about being judged and criticized, and I don't, at least, I'm not conscious of any kind of anxiety about doing a great job. I mean, that's the fantasy. It's not easy for people to accept this fear of success because we're not conscious of recreating those dynamics. What stops people often is not real for them as adults, but it was something that existed in their childhood that they're still carrying around. Mm -hmm. At some point, some of us are aware of some of it, and we can then talk to ourselves about it. 
when I finally realized that this was what was inhibiting a lot of the writers I work with, I would pull it out too quickly, and it, it, you have to build to it. Right. Writers have told themselves so many stories about why they can't write, because they're not disciplined, because they're afraid of failure, that you can't just say to somebody, no, that's not the problem. So when I work with writers, I work on two levels. I work on a behavioral level, help writers start, just get some words on the page. Then we move more into where did this all begin? The first level is pretty easy to deal with because I can talk to a client and say, okay, let's just say you're writing this and it's between you and me. Mm -hmm. We won't even think about anybody looking at it until you have this number of pages. And once that happens, it's better for a while and they can write, and then they'll hit another wall, and they'll realize there's something more there. You know, you read about the MacArthur grants, Mm -hmm. especially initially. There were a fair number of suicides, people who went into depression, and that's certainly not because of failure. Yeah. Okay, another thing I wanted to ask you about was quitting. I think a lot of the time you see certain people who really should quit, and they're making themselves miserable by trying to do something that they just have no facility for. So that sometimes it's the right decision. You know, I teach in an MFA program, and some of the writers who have come in there at first, and I think, what is going to happen to this person? And at the end of a year, they've grown so tremendously as writers. So if at the end of two years they haven't made any progress, I would say, you know, you were a computer programmer, and you really had a fair amount of success at that. I would say, don't quit your day job. You know. Have you had that conversation with people? Not that many, because people can find their niche. I've had people I didn't think were very good writers and have moved into writing self-help books that don't demand that much right. from them as writers. So if something's not working, it doesn't mean you should move altogether away from it. I've worked with people whom I've nudged into different territory. Two people I work with, Instead of writing manuscripts, they're writing blogs, and that's working really well. So for me, it's a question of finding the right space. There are other people I know who are writing and don't publish and still feel good because they always wanted to write, and they're writing. They don't feel like failures. I feel like you're telling people to just redefine your goals so that failure is not possible, to move the goalposts to something achievable, and then you don't have to have that disappointment. Well, I'm not saying that you do that immediately. I'm saying, of course, we all want to get published. Of course, we all want to get good reviews. Each time I write, I have high hopes for what I've written. But my goal shouldn't be in writing that I want to get good reviews or that I want to publish everything I write. My goal is to write the best possible essay or chapter that I can. So I'm not saying to a priori scale back your goals. I'm just saying you don't have to feel like a failure because you didn't get good reviews or because a manuscript didn't get published. I'm not saying that the next time you do something, you don't hope for number one on the bestseller list. Right, because I mean, ultimately, writers all dream of that, and maybe we don't admit it to ourselves, but we all want to be big sellers and get glowing reviews. and... And there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's what you think about as you're sitting down to write every day, you're not going to be able to keep writing, and you're actually not going to write the best novel that you can because that's when you open the door for the critics at a way too early a stage. The time to have those hopes and allow them to flower is once you've finished a manuscript and are sending it around. Mm-hmm. But when you're creating something, 
the worst thing in the world to do is to think, oh my God, I really hope this makes the New York Times bestseller list. Because it's paralyzing? Well, I can guarantee you, you won't finish the novel. Right. I just actually talked to my agent. I had sent her a manuscript and she thinks it's exquisite and she thinks it's not marketable. So do I feel like a failure? No. Well, that's but just... I've done a lot of work on yeah. myself. But that's sort of just an unfortunate circumstance. But if she had said, this really isn't very good, or I feel like you could do better than this, that would be more of a challenge to handle gracefully. Right. But if you weren't aware of all the issues, you would say, see, I'm a failure. I didn't situate this book correctly for the market. Right. If I were really smart or a really good writer, it would transcend the market. You sure. would say, it's so brilliant, it's got to get published. And, you know, it might be that... This is, I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to risk it. <laughs> I tend to write very quiet books, yeah. and I, there's always that difficulty with my books. Well, it could be the result of an inhibition on my part. That it's not a complete honest expression, but it might be actually a symptom of a... Right, that I'm in hiding, partially. Interesting. I actually had never thought about that, but as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking that could just be very well true. Well, that, I'll send you a bill. <laughs> you know, because it's right. <laughs> That's what I had to kind of do in my family. I had to be successful up to a point, but I had to stay small at the same time. And so that's what I do with my writing. My last collection of essays is called Small. Wow. So, yeah. We've had an epiphany. I, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> and I want my epiphany. You don't know when it's going to arrive, sure. your epiphany. Maybe you haven't suffered enough. <laughs> you have an epiphany. You're talking to people about these kinds of issues. It will happen, but you don't know when. We have to have a lot yeah. of patience, and I'm much older than you are. Well, maybe a little. Um, <laughs> but I, I just can't get my mind away from the model that I've always looked at my own struggles with, and that is I put off my own you know, novel or screenplay because I've lived for a long time with an idea or a fantasy about myself that oh, I've got something great in me. And the way I've always thought about my resistance is that I don't want to test that fantasy. I want to just live with that fantasy and keep it perfect. And if I make something and it's flawed and it gets rejected, then that fantasy is shattered. Well, what about in law school? You finished law school. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole point of my going to law school was just a way to put off writing for a while. And You're devaluing yourself right in this interview. <laughs> so. Well, it's I'm just... going to say that it does not feel safe to you to value yourself. You cannot say, you know, actually, it's pretty amazing. I didn't even care about being in law school when I did well. Anybody can do that. It just doesn't feel special. And in a way, I could, you could say that I'm valuing myself. I, I'm being supremely arrogant to say being a lawyer is nothing. I've got more in me that I'm not realizing my potential. But... You're saying that because you want to win this argument. No, <laughs> no, I really think <laughs> Not, there's, I really think there's truth to that. Is that why you didn't practice law? Is that what you said to yourself at the time? Yeah, I'm, I'm not just uh, being argumentative. I really feel that way. Yeah. yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer, an artist, and law didn't satisfy that. So once you finished, you decided, okay, this really isn't for me. You know, I decided after a year of law school, and I just finished to finish. And did you think that was kind of amazing that you finished? No. Even though no, you didn't? <laughs> the way I tell it to people is that it was just a combination of inertia and cowardice that got me through law school. I... So I caught you again. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, you do comedy. Yeah. You put a negative spin. But all I'm saying is if anybody talks to you long enough, they'll see that there's some stake, some safety for you in doing that. The role that was awarded you and that you accepted and that worked within your family yeah. 
was for you to stay very humble. All right, I'm thinking about what you're saying. That's nice. <laughs> There's something more there. It's much more complicated than a fear of failure. Right. It's so interesting because I feel like in our culture, generally, when people talk about difficulty writing or difficulty creating, it's usually in the terms that I'm thinking of, like the fear of failure, fear of criticism. Why do you think we hold on to that version of things? It is the first place we go whenever we feel anxiety. We go to those self-criticisms and that fear of failure. Yeah. It might be true that I have a certain sample of writers because these are people who have come to seek counsel. Mm -hmm. They don't just give up. So it might be that there's more people out there who do just give up and maybe they are just afraid of failure. I don't know. But in terms of the people I've dealt with, it wasn't that. So you're not saying the fear of failure or rejection isn't a real thing? It's... No, we all fear rejection. We all fear failure. But why is it that some people can succeed in spite of that? Well, I would have guessed that we all have a certain ratio of confidence to neurosis, and the people who succeed have a few percent higher confidence. I wouldn't disagree with you, but confidence, it's made up of so many ingredients, and one of those ingredients is, is it safe for me to move ahead in this way? That's something we don't think about that much, because one of the other myths in this country is everybody wants to succeed. Yeah. But that isn't true if you look at families. Families function as systems. No matter how disturbed the system is, right. it doesn't mean that people are happy and living full lives, but it means that that system can perpetuate itself. Within a family, we assign each person a role, and that role becomes kind of immortal <laughs> within that family. Yeah. And because writing has to do with who we are, that's why I think, especially with writing, all those original issues surface. Interesting. Have you ever had this happen um, where somebody you were working with, the member of their family that they were afraid of, their resentment, that mm -hmm. person dies? And then, and then it can get worse. Oh, really? It, these are ghosts. Right. Often these are ghosts. It's a ghost anyway, even if they're alive. It's just their idea of the person. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, these are all voices in our heads, and they're very powerful. I had this issue with my third grade teacher who had been very critical of me. So I finally, you know, in my head, I would say, Mrs. Lauk, you're a great teacher. I don't think I need your help right now. So what you're doing, it's sort of an assertiveness training. It's more a negotiation, finding other things for these people to do. Because we live with all these ghosts and these voices in our head. Yeah. We're not really used to being just one-on-one -on -one with ourselves. So when you escort these ghosts out, you become more comfortable with yourself, and that's a whole new universe. Failure is always the best way to learn. Retracing your steps till you know. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same as we are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. The preacher pushes me aside and asked to wash my sins. I said no, 
Ira Glass has a lovely bit of wisdom that's been making the rounds on the internet lately. It's on YouTube if you want to hear the whole thing, but here's a little piece. Failure is a big part of success. Sometimes I sound like some Michael Jordan ad, but you're going to run a lot of stuff and it's going to go nowhere, and you should be happy about that. If you're not failing all the time, you're not creating a situation where you can get super lucky. A lot of broadcasting is in the purest way about luck. You just want to be in a situation where you're doing enough material so that you know every week you're going to interview somebody about something. And through that, maybe once every six weeks, you're going to stumble on somebody who is so compelling and a story that's so great that it makes those other five weeks worth it. You have to go into it knowing that you've got to record and get rid of a lot of crap before you're going to get to anything that's special. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Nobody tells people who are beginners. And I really wish somebody had told this to me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste, okay? And you get into this thing that there's a gap, that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your taste is still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You can tell that it's still sort of crappy. A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I would say to you with all my heart is most everybody I know who does interesting creative work went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short. It didn't have the special thing that we wanted it to have. Everybody goes through that. And if you're just starting off and you're entering into that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're going to catch up and close that gap. And the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. But I got to tell you, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while and you just have to fight your way through that. You probably feel all warm inside hearing that. I do but a dark voice pops up in my head that says, sure, Ira Glass felt the pain of that gap, but so does everyone who never makes it. It's great to think about how Michael Jordan and Ira Glass failed, because it says there's a path from where we are to where they are. But that's mostly not true. These guys hit the top of their fields. They're the elites. I'm gonna make you see it. There's nobody else here. I know what like me. Special, so special. I gotta have some of it. Attention, give it to me. I live in Hollywood, and everyone here is terrified to be average. But we can't all be special. Wouldn't we be happier accepting that? I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. They're not that different from you, are they? Full of hormones, just like you. 
They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because, you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. You hear it? <clears throat> I love this scene like everybody else, but sometimes I wonder whether there's a price for being inspired. I mean, Jesus Christ, Robin, that's a lot of pressure. We can't all be extraordinary, by definition. We're setting ourselves up to fail. There will always be a lot more Salieri's than Mozart's. That's no tragedy. Why can't we be happy in our mediocrity? It's good to realize your potential, but realize has two meanings. Man's got to know his limitations. We love hearing about the failures of great people. Beethoven's music teacher told him he was hopeless. Van Gogh only sold one painting in his lifetime. Lincoln lost eight elections. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Ira Glass apparently used to stink. We like these stories because they're not really failure stories. They're success stories. They help us feel our failures don't define us. There are plenty of stories that go from failure to more failure. We just don't want to hear them. Do you know who I am? I'm a vice president at Paramount Pictures. Oh. Are you interested in making movies? Yes. I bet you've got 50 movie ideas sitting in that brain. Tell me the best one, now. Yeah? Well, you know how movies, there's always a guy and his life is okay, and then something happens, like a conflict, and he has to resolve it, and then his life gets better. Well, I always wanted to make a movie where a guy's life is really bad and then something happens and it makes it worse. But instead of resolving it, he just makes bad choices. And then it goes from worse to really bad. And things just keep happening to him and he keeps doing dumb things. So his life just gets worse and worse and like darker and like he has, um, lives in a little one room apartment. He's not a very good-looking guy, he has no friends, and he, he works in like a factory, like a sewage disposal plant. And then he gets fired, so now he doesn't even have his job at the shit factory anymore, and he's going broke, and he takes like a trip, and it rains, like just stuff, just shit keeps horrible. But then he meets a girl, and she's beautiful, and he falls in love, so you think that's gonna be the thing, the happy thing, but then she turns out to be a crook, and she robs him. Now he's like stuck in the middle of nowhere and he's got no wallet, no credit cards. Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you even get home or? Doesn't he have a cell phone? Yeah, I mean, I came up with this before cell phones were really. You know what, Louis, this is amazing. I, I just, I just need to go say hello to some people. Uh, give me a second, okay, hon? Okay. When I saw him glad morning, and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Plane Crash Follies with a new cast of characters each and every episode. We take you now, as always, to the interior of a commercial airliner that is plummeting to a terrible end. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Shit, guys, I am so sorry. There was a pre-flight check thing that I skipped because it would have delayed us a half an hour, and odds of it mattering were one in a million. I swear, one in a million. If I had to do it over, I'd make a different choice. Obviously, I, I don't want this to happen any more than you. It'll be all over the news how I screw the pooch on this. But I just want you to know that I am not drunk, or hungover, or anything. I was only thinking of getting you in on time, but I guess now we're all going to be a little early. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't joke. You're probably all pissed off at me, and I can't say I blame you. But who among you hasn't made a mistake, huh? Done something dumb you wish you could take back? Who of you hadn't been in a fender bender that was your fault, right? So I hope you won't be too hard on me. Nobody's perfect. Uh, we know you have choices when you fly, and... I know you wish you made a different choice today, but uh, we'll thank you all the same. Take her easy, everybody! If you ask any comedian for a list of the funniest guys working, Brian Regan will be on it. Here he is on the podcast Comedy and Everything Else, talking with Jimmy Dore and Todd Glass. I remember the first time I Sorry. went to audition, they introduced me, and I went on stage, and I completely blanked. I completely really? like, freaked out. Wow. I had every word memorized. This is like what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. You, I dropped no out notes? of college. I had every word memorized. Hi, how are you? Was written down <laughs> and memorized. And they, they introduced me. Please welcome our next open micer, number six. And I got on stage and I said, hi, how are you? Like I, I had it memorized. And I was too close to the mic and I got feedback. And the lights were like a lot brighter than anybody ever knows. Right. I couldn't see anybody in the audience. And I like, in my mind, I was like, make a joke about the feedback. And I said, well, I've already learned one thing. I don't know how to talk into a microphone. And that got like a little chuckle. You know, because I was ad-libbing. Nice. And that threw me. Because really? I had, hi, how are you? My name's Brian. I didn't know where to go after that. And I blanked out. And I'm like looking out into these lights. And I'm like, uh, whoa, hey. You know, all righty. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. And I started stammering. And I said, you're not going to believe this, folks. But I forgot my entire act. And they laughed. But it was like a Twilight Zone kind of laughter. Wow. And, I'm, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm serious. I forgot everything. And they laughed again. And I'm like, well, you guys must just think I'm a big idiot. And they laughed <laughs> at that. And I just kept joking about how stupid I was for not being able to remember anything of my audition. And they just kept laughing and laughing. And I'm like, no, this is a nightmare, folks. Ha ha ha. And I ended up killing about how stupid I was that I couldn't remember a single word from my act. And I go, I know you all think I'm joking, but I'm telling you that God's on a truth. I don't know anything. And they were, ha ha ha. And I said, good night. And I got this huge hand and I walked off stage. It looks like you really committed to this. I didn't, like, I, I didn't know. You I was like in another world, man. I walked off stage and I was like, what the hell was that all about? And the professional comedians were coming up to me going, that was amazing, man. Was that planned? And I'm like, was that planned? <laughs> I don't even know what happened. And I swear to God, that was my first time on stage. And that basically hasn't changed till today. <laughs>
<laughs> and now I do that for an hour. Well, it does seem. I how stupid I am. You guys think I'm retarded. I'm really retarded. Look at me. I don't even want to say you too. I don't want to say goodbye to Bob Fucking dumb. It does seem like if there was a movie about Brian Regan, that that would be the opening of it. That was my first time on stage in a comedy club, and I remember driving home that night. Actually, I flipped it in my head going, you know what? I don't care if I didn't remember anything. I got him laughing. I knew I was ad-libbing, and I knew what was going on. I knew I was playing around, Evil. joking on myself, and I knew that I got him laughing. I like my, my, my second time on stage in that comedy club, I remembered my entire act and, and went down in flames. <laughs> <laughs> the next week, down in flames. That is the perfect. Not a single laugh. That. But you know what? I always wonder if I had remembered my first time and bombed if I would have quit. Right. But I had the memory of going, you know what? I know I made them laugh. So I lived on that for a while because I bombed like the next four times audition. Wow. That's a really, I said that the same exact great. thing. I did really good the first night. And then, I don't know, it seemed like 30 times after that I didn't do very well. <laughs> And uh, But it sounds so cliche, but that laughter that I got from the first time, it made me... I tell you, I hear that story over and over. I've heard so many comedians say their first time on stage, they happen to do well. And I always wonder how many potentially incredible comedians there are out there who didn't get lucky their first time, who Quit. went down in flames and said, I don't need this in my life. At first, I thought this didn't apply to me because I bombed at my first open mic. But then I realized my first time doing comedy was actually giving the toast at my brother's wedding two years earlier, and I killed. People were patting me on the back for the rest of the night. There was a guy in the catering staff who came up to me. He said, like, I hear toasts all the time. That was the best I've ever heard. If it wasn't for that experience, I might not have tried again after bombing that first open mic. And I once heard a poker player talk about this phenomenon. He said most professional poker players ran well in the beginning. He said probably there are lots of people out there who have a great talent for the game, but they ran bad in the beginning and gave up before they could find out how good they were. So there are people who quit and shouldn't. And probably it goes the other way, too, and some people hold on too long. We love stories that tell us don't quit. I feel like I've seen a lot of movies where an old man tells a kid a story of a chance he once had and didn't take, and how for his whole life he's had to wonder. Better to try and fail, he says, than to spend your whole life not knowing. But how does he know it's better? If he had failed, he'd have had to give up the fantasy, and maybe his life would have been worse without it. He's looking at the past with the same dreamy eyes with which the young see the future. I rode the bench for two years. Thought I wasn't being played because of my color. I got filled up with a lot of attitude, so I quit. Still not a week goes by, I don't regret it. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life. You won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. Everyone wants to be lifted up. But I also want to say, it's okay if you want to quit. Sometimes it's the right choice. And there's no easy bumper sticker sized way to know when. Don't pile shame onto shame. Losing hurts enough. someone you admire at a party. 
someone more successful than you in some way. You don't know what to say. They are casual, friendly, at ease. They make a joke. You laugh because you recognize that's what's expected before you have a chance to enjoy it. You scramble to think of a witty reply, but only come up with something forced. The admired person understandably retreats from your awkward energy. Later you think about the moment, and as you replay it, you think of the perfect reply. I got in my own way, you tell yourself. I got nervous. They would have liked me, you think, if only they'd met the real me. Why couldn't I be relaxed like I am with my friends? Maybe you've had this experience at a job interview or an audition. You feel a disconnect between how you know yourself and how you were seen. You feel cheated, embarrassed by the shoddy way your surface represented you. We never think of the fear as part of us. We feel there's an essential me behind the fear. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, We judge ourselves by what we feel capable of doing, while others judge us by what we have already done. But we see the outer view too, and it hurts when it's very different from how we want to see ourselves. There's always another voice, maybe little, maybe big, that says, maybe I can't do better. Maybe that was the real me. Failure has two components, the ideal and the real. There's the summit and there's the place we actually get to. And failure is the distance between the two. So to avoid failure, there are two possible approaches. We can try to improve ourselves to close the gap, or we can lower expectations. Can't do it. What? I can't beat them. I've been out there walking around, thinking, I mean, who am I kidding? I ain't even in the guy's league. What are we gonna do? Nah, it don't matter, because there was nobody before. Don't say that. Oh, come on, Adrian, it's true. I was nobody. That don't matter either, you know? Because I was thinking. It really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head again. Because all I want to do is go to distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, Seeing that bell rings and I'm still standing. I'm gonna know for the first time in my life, see? That I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Hi, Uncle Marty. Daniel, nice to hear from you. So the next episode of my podcast is about failure. Okay. And here I, I catch him up a little on the things I've been talking to you about. Where did you get the idea that failure is so horrible? It is horrible. No. Say you ask a girl out and she says no. Well, that hurts. Wait. Sorry. Or say you apply for a job and you don't get it. Okay. You haven't lost anything, only failed to gain. So why should you feel worse? I think what you lose is hope. Hope? What hope? Uh, the hope of getting that thing, whatever you wanted. But your life was not horrible without that thing yesterday, so why should you feel horrible today when you're no worse off? You can hope for other things. Well, maybe the problem is you lose hope about yourself. Ah, but why should you? You took a risk. That in itself is a victory. You can't control the other person, but in yourself, you fought fear and won. You should be proud. Yeah, I try to tell myself all that stuff, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. Let me ask you this. What if we all just let go of our hopes about ourselves? What would we ever achieve then? 
I, I'm not saying we don't strive. I'm saying, can't we do it without it being about ego? That's what drives us, right? The desire to step into that image of the self we want to be. You're trying to take all the pain out of life, but pain is part of it. Risk is part of it. You can sit on the couch and never do anything, or you can risk failing. Oi. In fact, it may be ego that gets you off the couch because you on the couch doesn't match your idea of yourself. Can't we paint a beautiful painting because we love color and light and whatever else and, and not because we're trying to prove something? Can't we write a song because we love music? Can't we get off the couch because of lust for life? Yeah. Ego doesn't drive us. It holds us back. If it's arrogance, it makes us miss mistakes. If it's insecurity, it paralyzes us. Ego isn't propulsion, it, it's a distraction. Mm -hmm. A basketball player standing at the free throw line, he doesn't want to be thinking about how he looks, how people will love him if he makes a shot or hate him if he misses. He needs to be thinking about the ball, yeah. the hoop, the distance, nothing else. But how do you take away the bad stuff without taking away the good stuff? If you don't feel bad for them booing you if you miss a shot, then how are you going to feel good when they cheer you for making it? Wait, wait, we're either connected or we're not connected. You're mixing up two things. There's during and there's after. Yeah, but if you care after, it's hard not to think about it during. Okay, so maybe we'd be better off not caring too much. But if we I'm don't... not saying we shouldn't be connected to each other. I'm saying when we're attempting something, we should focus on that thing and not the prizes the things will win us. The thing should be the prize. Oh, you're right. Okay, but let's say you're trying to paint something beautiful and it, it comes out terrible. What happens? What happens? You try again or you do something else. You're saying we shouldn't feel bad about it? You're saying we should? I'm saying it's unavoidable. I'm saying we're not Buddhist monks. Except I, for Buddhist monks. Yeah, okay. And, and I think the idea of no ego and no desire goes against human nature. Well, you might be right, but you fought these ego fights a long time, and how has it gone for you? Yeah. Okay, listen, your Aunt Helen is calling me. The toilet is backed up. Oh, geez, okay. Let me just say one more thing. Try or give up, but don't stall. Delay is the worst choice. Whether you're going to fail or succeed, it may as well be sooner. Yeah. And you know I love you either way, right? Thanks, Uncle Marty. Good luck with that toilet. And give my regards to Aunt Helen. I'll do that. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye. Oh, you can make a mess of the simplest song And no one will land No, no one will land You can make a mess of the simplest song And no one will laugh at you I have a lot of failure in my lifetime. <laughs> I thought you'd have like one or two stories. I mean, look, I'm the guy that tried out for basketball in high school. <laughs> you know, I set myself up for failure. You shoot too high. Not high enough. I didn't make the team. <laughs> I didn't. Uh... Jimmy Pardo is a popular touring comedian. He's a host of the very successful podcast, Never Not Funny. He's been all over television, and he's currently a member of Team Coco with the Conan O'Brien show, and even has his own show in the works. He's had a lot of wins in his life. But 10 years ago, he had a very bad day, and he was gracious enough to talk to us about it. Probably the biggest failure was 2002. I was the second comic on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno after 9-11. Uh, Where are you in your career at this point? I've been doing comedy uh, 13, 14 years at that point. I was getting some recognition as a comic, finally. You know, I'd done a lot of television, you know, premium blends, and hosted a lot of game show pilots, talk show pilots. At the time, I was in the mix to do a Conan uh, late night. That yeah. never, it never happened, but probably because we got out on this Tonight Show. But <laughs> um, So you get the call? The process is you do showcases around town, and they give you notes on your set. You know, hey, this right. one might work, this might not work. They finally said, we think the set's there, let's get you on the show. And then the call came, you want to do it Friday. But at the time, I thought it was lucky. I got called two days before 
somebody fell out. Call comes Wednesday. That's right. You're excited. Very excited. You're calling everybody? Of course. It's the Brass Ring. Right. It's the Tonight Show. It's not Carson's Tonight Show, but it's still the Tonight Show. You know what it is, Dan? It stops the person on the plane next to me because they always go, oh, what do you do? And very rarely do I admit what I do, but, you know, I'm a comedian. Yeah. Oh, you ever do the Tonight Show? Yeah. Uh, Not yet. Well, keep trying. Yeah. But if you go, yes, conversation's over. You've done it. In their head, you're You're a success. And same with cousins. Oh, yeah, every family event. And at the time, Jay wasn't hated the way that he is today. And it was still the Tonight Show. It still had a little respect to it. It had a sheen. It had a nice sheen. (laughs) Okay. So. Are you nervous? Um, I'm not really nervous because it's the similar set to what I had done on Craig Kilborn. And I had a couple of great experiences on Craig Kilborn. And all these jokes are tried and true. You've done them a hundred times. A hundred times, just not in this order. You know, that's the only difference. So, no, I I wasn't nervous. You know, you get that adrenaline, the butterflies and the, hey, I'm doing the Tonight Show. You're feeling good. It's not like painful. I'm feeling great. I've had good experiences. So I came in. I do not want to use the word cocky. That's not me at all. Confident. Thank you, Dan. All right. So walk me through it. Well, what happened was I want to say Hootie and the Blowfish canceled. So let's plug Pardo in. And so I get there, and my girlfriend at the time, and my friend Mike Schmidt, my friend Pat Francis, were in my dressing room, and then knock on the door, and, uh, hey, so big people. And, you know, (laughs) we chit-chat a little bit. He kept on going, first one's easy, second one's hard. First one's easy, second one's hard. And now I'm getting a little nervous because I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's saying the first time First time doing it's easy. And I'm wired in such a way that I'm the opposite. My second one's going to be easier because I've done it. And I think a lot of people would feel that way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Dan, I appreciate you saying that because even as I was saying it now, it's like I still don't believe the first one's easier. No, and in a lot of other contexts like killing people, they always say the first one's the toughest. I don't know. I don't know why I use that as an example. That's a horrible example. That's the worst <laughs> analogy in the world. But uh, a lot of things, you know, you, yeah, you get one under your belt and it's uh, – And then you're okay. Hey, I'm right. back. Um, Losing your virginity? Maybe this is a better example. That's a great one. My first time was uh, not so well. Once again, hooting the blowfish canceled, so <laughs> I got the sh- I got the chance. So uh, you know, he kept on saying that, and I really I get it on paper. Yeah, you've had your entire career to come up with your best five minutes of material right. to do on the Tonight Show, and then you got to look for your second five for the second one. Right. I, I get it. Right. I just don't think it's realistic as a right. performer. But you don't say any of that. You just say no. I just go. Mr. Leno. Yeah, I just kind of <laughs> shake my head and hope he walks out. Yeah, and finds more denim to put on. So he. Uh, I remember I also asked that I wanted a song by the band Chicago to play as I walked out. In the old days when you did Letterman, you could ask for a song, and they would play you on to that song. And they were like, nope. Like, I was crazy to ask that. I go, oh, okay. Nah, band says no. And a little... A little rude. Aggressive and rude like that. So it's like, oh, okay. Little things like that can affect you. You know, do you feel welcome, or do you feel there's hostility around? Do you feel like you're in a safe place, or did that... It didn't make me feel comfortable. If they had been nice to you, it might have had you in a better frame of mind when you stepped out there. We're insecure comedians. You know, even if I walk in confident, you hear no, you're put back on your heels. That's a stressful moment. So the show starts. And Jay goes out and his monologue is bombing. It is getting nothing. Now, at this point, my wife and Mike Schmidt and Pat Francis are out in the audience. And I'm in my dressing room with my agents. And we're watching it. We're like, Wow, this is – and, you know, a lot of people like to crap on Jay's monologue that it's too long and it's not funny. And right. this night, you can't even say that. The jokes weren't bad. Yeah. He just was getting nothing from the audience. And he doesn't acknowledge it, right? Never. Yeah. Uh, 
you know what? He might have said one thing over to Kevin, you know, like, he's not Kevin. Yeah, because that was Johnny's thing. Embrace it. Yeah. Embrace that it's a tough crowd. Roll with the fact that it's a tough crowd. Turn but, it around. But he made one comment that I think he kind of had to do just to release the valve a little bit. But I was watching going, oh, this isn't good. Then they called me in for makeup. And this was between Jay doing his long monologue and going over to the desk. So during that commercial break, I'm in the makeup chair, and Jay comes backstage, and he goes crazy. He's yelling, that fucking, that audience, that's a fucking audience, that horrible audience. <laughs> you know, and he's going nuts about the, about the audience. Yeah. And the makeup lady walks over, and she doesn't slam the door because he would hear it. Closes the door gently <laughs> so that we don't hear him yelling. Right. And she goes, he's never done that. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I go, what? Terrible. And she said, I've been here, you know, X amount of years. He never <laughs> reacts that way. Okay. Your pulse is rising. And I'm like, makeup, makeup, makeup. <laughs> and then the desk piece was Dane Cook did a bit where he was this man on the street scream therapist where he just would run up to people and have them yell. And it's getting nothing. Yeah. And it really wasn't that funny. And I'm not a Dane basher in any way, shape, or form. I like Dane Cook. This just wasn't a funny segment. And now we're almost at the bottom of the hour. And I'm looking at the clock going, well, I hope they don't bump me. Because I also I always had that fear that I finally get to Tonight Show, I get bumped, and they never find a new oh, date for me. Because I would be there in that moment thinking, please bump well, me. Well, you know what? That, I'm like the kid in right field, you know, like, don't hit it. Don't hit it. <laughs> well, that came later. Okay. But at this time, I still didn't want it. I was like, I want to do this. And you have that, hey, this set is going to kill. Right. This set. I'm going to turn funny. this crowd around. You're right? still confident. I know this set's funny. Dane's thing didn't work because it wasn't funny. Even Jay's monologue, they wrote it that day. This is Right, this is my tried, and, tried true. and true. So then they booked this mad scientist guy you know, who had been on the show before where he made science projects out of like a cracker and baking soda. Okay. And I think one of them might have been like a bomb, which I thought was crazy right after 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> really? We're going to show people how to... I, right. And in a club, you just do 10 minutes on that. Exactly. Yeah, uh, you weren't handcuffed. Right. It's not even a late night one where you could... Feel loosey-goosey. Right. It's the Tonight Show. It's happening. You're finally getting knighted. Yeah. And uh, so then uh, the mad scientist was the lead guest, and none of his things are working. None of them are are going well. <laughs> if it was the saltine baking soda thing that I seem to remember, yeah. you know, he goes to light it off, and it doesn't explode. <laughs> and Jay isn't Carson. He's not Conan. He doesn't know how to be in the moment. He doesn't know how to play up the fact that it's bombing. And have fun with that. He's pretending like it's still working. And we all see it's not. Right. So the audience is weirded They're out. are getting more alienated. Why are you pretending this is going okay? We're all watching it not go well. And he goes, well, we got, we'll got. we be back with more of the sciences after this. What? more? Another segment? <laughs> and now I'm looking at the clock thinking, oh, they're going to bump me. Oh, come on. Don't bite. Come on. Just let me have this. <laughs> let me have the Tonight Show. Let me shut the guy up in the chair next to me in the on the plane. They call them chairs. Um, I sit in first class, Dad. And Those chairs. are chairs. Uh, so then Marissa Tomei was filling in for somebody. She's since been on Conan and is very charming and very funny. On this day, she was none of that. I think she was mad that she was coming after the mad scientist? Maybe, right? But her segment, Dan, they're talking about recipes. And it's going nowhere. And I'm looking at the clock, and now it's the, You're finally now starting. it switches. Now I'm begging. Now I'm in my head. Please come in here and tell me you're bumping me. This whole show is a nightmare. I can't save it. 
this is not the show for me to do my Tonight Show debut on. And it's the commercial break. There's a knock on the door. They open up and they go, you ready? I go, you bumping me? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm putting it in their head. Yeah. And they said, no, here's the deal. There's four and a half minutes left of the show. Your set is timing out at four minutes 45. You may get the wrap-up sign during your set. Yeah. If you do, finish that joke and say goodnight. And I then say, why doesn't Jay just do another segment with yeah. her and you bump me? Yeah. Jay doesn't want to do another segment with her because that was so awful. Okay. <laughs> I now don't have a choice. I, I mean, I never had a choice, but nobody is considering bumping me. Yeah. Maybe in their head they're going, the comic will get them. So then they walk me, and now now I am nervous, Dan. I'm no longer the confident guy. Now it's... You're walking the green mile. I really am, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm walking it, and they put me in my position where I could see a little segment of the audience. I looked over, and there's one guy, and he looks at me, gives me the thumbs up with a oh. smile. I thought it, you were going to say arms full. No, no, yeah. just the opposite. Yeah. Thumbs up. Exactly what I needed. Uh -huh. Confidence is back. I can save this. This audience wants to laugh. And, you know, hey, please welcome this guy, Jimmy Pato. And I walk out, and I hit my mark. No microphone. You know, it's with the lob, Tonight Show style. And my first line, tell you a little something about myself, and why not, right? I'm the guy talking. <laughs> nothing. And I don't mean I'm exaggerating. Nothing. And every time you say that line at a club, something. It's never not gotten. People react, yeah. People react. Yeah. This is just as if I just went, uh, not even hello. Hello would have gotten a reaction. This got zero. So what's I, happening in your... No, it's like, oh, weird. And then I remember even saying to the talent bookers, once I get to the first punchline I have, oh, about drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. I was so drunk that I drove into a ditch, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but I stopped into the ditch, looked left and right, then drove into the ditch. I remember thinking, that's such a Tonight Show joke that at the end of that, just instinctively, they will applaud. And instead, <laughs> silence. Oh, God. The only laughter, it was Pat Francis, Danielle Koenig, and Mike Schmidt. They're laughing. But they're laughing because they're there to support me. And it really sounds like, hey, who's his buddies laughing? <laughs> it's and very isolated. It re I mean, because that's, yeah. that's all you hear is Mike Schmidt fake laughing, basically. Right. And if that's me in that moment. I'm just thinking, those are my friends laughing. They know this is going horrible. They are seeing what's going on. I'm starting to think about all the things you shouldn't be thinking about. And I'm going to throw this into the mix. The one note I was given, Jimmy, this is The Tonight Show. Don't stray from the script. You're a guy who likes to deconstruct and a guy that likes to yeah. talk about what's happening. Jay doesn't like Don't that. Don't go with your strength. Right? So while this is all happening, all I'm thinking is comment on this. You have to comment on yeah. this. You can't comment. Jay doesn't like that. Oh, okay. And then not being smart enough to go, well, you're not coming back anyway. You're never getting back on The Tonight Show. You're bombing. They're not going to rebook you. You're failing. So why not lose on your terms? Yeah. I also thought Jay never acknowledges it. Maybe they sweeten it. Just keep smi oh. keep smiling <laughs> and keep doing the act as if nobody at home will ever know that this is a nightmare. Oh, right. So I'm going, oh, they're going to fix this in post. Yeah. So just keep going as if I'm killing. I'm waiting for laughs that don't even happen. You're just giving the beat. Yeah, I'm giving the beat. <laughs> and, and, and the beat kind of looks like I'm losing my place. But I'm truly in my head, they're going to put some laughs in here. There's yeah. no way they're going to let this happen on television. At one point, Kevin laughed, and I wanted to acknowledge him. I didn't. Ugh. I didn't follow any of my instincts. I followed the rule of Jay doesn't like it, stayed to the script. Right. 
And I wanted to do some joke about this being the second worst bomb since that scientist thing didn't work. I don't do any of that. I just keep smiling and doing my act. And at the time, I play with my shirt cuffs, yeah. which was perceived as a nervous but thing. But it's a, one of those funny things. Yeah, you know, it's my rapid-fire style. Yeah. And then, you know, tugging <laughs> out of But when there's no laughs, that just looks like, oh, Jesus, he's panicking. And, yeah. you know, he's about to rip his sleeves off. You know, then the next joke got nothing. And I'm about two and a half minutes in. And I forget what joke I did, but it got a laugh. And I'm not saying I got a big laugh. I finally got a laugh. And then the last minute and a half was okay. That's my memory of it. That it's like you did your own warm-up. Yeah. yeah it, um, and by the way, no worries on me going long on that set. You know, it <laughs> yeah. came in the four and a half minutes they allowed me. You shaved that 15. You got shaved that 15. <laughs> and then I was done. And then I had to walk over to Jay. I come over to sit down, and Marissa Tomei refuses to leave the seat. She just sits there and stares up at me. You're like, what are we going to do here? And that's why I said, I go, uh, what are we going to do here? After trying to, the professor moved down. Now there's an empty seat for Marissa to move yeah. down to. And it's like, come on, dummy, you've been on talk yeah. shows. You know what to do. Move. Move your, in my head, Don't I'm going. add insult to injury. Yeah. I just had a shit set. Now I look at the guy that doesn't know how to sit down. And then in my head, I'm going, was I not supposed to come over here? Was I only supposed to come over if it went well? Well, that was the thing with Johnny, where you get waved over. Well, Johnny would wave you over. This they was told you to just go over. Head over. And then finally, Jay goes, yeah, let's get up in Marissa. Let's move over and let's move over for Jimmy. And then he goes, hey, very funny, Jimmy. And again, my instincts, I wanted to say, what set did you see? <laughs> Instead, I just went, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's it for us. We got to go. Good night. And then show's over. Yeah. I'm humiliated. And we all know what just happened. And I'm just kind of standing there. And Jay just ignores me and looks right to Marissa Tomei. And just starts talking about her movie. But I'm standing between them. And I just felt like... That situation is terrible because you feel like you can't even get up because you have to interrupt their line. I just had to sit there and be ignored. And you know I will not be ignored, Dan. (laughs) No. And then we had to do throws to the local news. He had to tape five of those. Thanks a lot. Susan, coming up, we got the mad scientist, Marissa Tomei, and Jimmy Prado. Very funny. You know, we had to do... So you have to sit there... And pretend like I don't, because again, I still think they're going to sweeten it. Right. So I'm still, I'm on camera, (laughs) but dying inside. Yeah. Was there like a physical reaction? Like you'd just been in a car accident or something? I felt nauseated. I felt weak. Uh, Sweating, were you? I don't know. I I don't, I don't know. damp? I don't know about any moisture. (laughs) I know you, I know that your show hinges on moisture. moisture. I do remember feeling like I was just beat up. One of my agents said, well, maybe Schmitty can make a uh, demo from his laugh track. <laughs> because that's all you heard was Mike Schmidt's laugh, yeah. which is pretty sure not good bedside etiquette. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not what the piece of talent wants to hear. He doesn't want confirmation yeah. that it went horribly. Yeah. I already know it did. I need my people to yes me. At Even that. if you could say in your head, ah, they're just being polite. It Be it polite. Takes Pol- a little the edge off. Lie. You're my representation. Lie to me. Yeah, I'm still with that guy, by the way. Um, uh, All right, so you get off your friends. What about them? That's an awkward time. They were cool about it. You know, Pat Francis, to this day, when people want to crap on my Tonight Show appearance, because it became a punchline for a little while of, oh, I don't want to do like Pardo. I don't want to do it. And Pat Francis says, if you watch the entire show, you would see Jimmy got exactly what was given to everybody. He didn't bomb. The show bombed. So that made me feel good. Like, that's what my manager should have said to me. But instead, it was my best friend and my girlfriend and my other best friend, Mike, who were there to go, shoot her, it wasn't that bad. Yes, you got no laughs. 
But so they weren't lying. I mean, they're too close to you to bullshit you. They weren't like, great job, Jimmy. No, no, no. They're trying to be positive. I said to the talent guys, that was a nightmare. And they're like, no, it wasn't as bad as you thought. Did you say anything to them about it before you left? Uh, Hey, you guys are going to... Sweetness? (laughs) uh, I don't think I did. I just wanted out of there. I really just wanted to go with my friends. The cocoon of love to just make me think it's going to be okay. And again, in the big scheme of the world, it's nothing. It's four and a half minutes. But at the time, I just wanted to be held. I mean, yeah. honest to God, I wanted to just be held. So, so yeah, I had to go out to Ventura that night and do a 25-minute set to rehearse for my Comedy Central taping. Uh, so I was immediately wow. going from this complete failure yeah. to four days later, I had to go tape my special. Within a week, wow. I was doing the two things that every comic wants right. to do. Well, maybe that was a good thing in a way because you can just go home and lie in bed for a week. You know? No way. And then I went up and luckily, I, I mean, I had a great set Oh, that's such a gift. However, driving home from Ventura was at the time that The Tonight Show had just played on the East Coast. And I'm looking <laughs> at my phone, and nothing's happening. So right. it's like, oh, man. Right. My dad called, and he's like, hey, give me a call, son. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And my mom was better than that. My mom was... Uh, They're afraid you're on the ledge. Maybe. You know, like, hey, Jim, it's your mom. You, you do real good. You know, real supportive. Yeah. And luckily, Mike made that drive with me to Ventura, which is an hour drive from Los Angeles, and that drive back. Because I could not, at that moment, alone with my thoughts in a car, was going to be disastrous. And then I went to the improv that night. At the time, they used to have a tradition. If you're on The Tonight Show, you come to the bar for a champagne toast. They want to turn on the TV, and you're like, no. And I I told Danielle, I go, I don't want to go. And she's like, you got to go. They're proud of you. And she was right. Was she? Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be weird if I didn't show up, and then they're all there watching it, and they, oh, that's why he didn't come. Well, what happened was, and this was actually a positive, is I got there, and the comics were laughing. The people at the improv didn't hear me not do well, because they were laughing. What was it like lying in bed that night or the next morning? Do you remember that? I couldn't sleep. Whenever I have, um, even my live shows, if, if a show at the UCB didn't go exactly how I wanted it to go, I have trouble sleeping that night, where huh. it's like, oh, I wish I could have done that, I wish I... I beat myself up over something that everybody's already forgotten about. I That's was, what's going through your head, like should have said. Oh, all of should have. Like I said, you're not getting booked back anyway. This isn't going well. Comment on it. So at least everybody would, hey, how funny was Pardo when it wasn't working and he right. said blah, 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 blah. That's the shooter. Let Pardo be Pardo. And I wasn't. I was handcuffed. And again, I thought they might sweeten it. And I'm able to, obviously, I'm able to laugh about it now. But it haunted me for years. It's only four minutes and 25 seconds of my life. But this is like all your years on the road. You're like, one day I'm going to do the Not even years on the road. High school, grade school. You know, that's the dream. One day I'm going to be on The Tonight Show. And by the way, the dream of, you know, here it comes, a-holes. You want to make fun of me? Oh, right. You want to make fun of me being short? You want to make fun of me not fitting in? I'm on The Tonight Show. What are you doing? I'll show them finally. And then, you know, I'm on the ropes. And, uh... Obviously, you know, it's 10 years later, and who cares? And I've done a zillion things on television since then where I've been funny, and my Comedy Central special went great five days later, so it kind of washed it away a little bit. Right. And, you know, luckily, Facebook wasn't happening at the time. There were some news groups on the Internet. I started getting beat up on that news group a little bit. Guys saying, that was horrible. Yeah. Hey, how about some punchlines, Pardo? And then one guy, a guy named Dixon, went on there and said, well, that punchline-free set got him a champagne toast at the improv last night. What did you do last night? And then Pat Francis went on there and said, he didn't just walk out there and wing it. That set was approved. I remember I did a little nice little post. 
you wrote me you're a good friend. And I was like, oh, I guess he's feeling it a little. Well, I did feel that because another friend of ours that was on that news group was not all that positive in this public forum. And I emailed him and said, would it kill you just to say it was okay yeah. so that they'll stop piling on me? And he wrote back, I can't do that. Wow. That's yeah, pretty shitty. That's yeah. friends jump in there and help me out and right. say, hey, rough night or whatever the fuck you want to say. Right. You're my f- yeah, so or if you I, feel weird putting a positive spin on it, just don't, you don't, don't have to jump anything. in there and criticize. So if I emailed you and said, you're a good friend, I meant it because that was rough. Luckily, the internet was different in 2002. Right. Man, and it won't be on YouTube. The video would be up. Forever. It would be everywhere with nothing but hate comments underneath it. <laughs> God. I mean, it would have been awful. Yeah. And so how long did it take before you really like shook it off? This will sound crazy, but I finally shook it off November the 17th of 2011. <laughs> when I did panel on Conan and oh, and hit, yeah. it was everything that Pardo should be on TV. And I'm interacting with this brilliant man, Conan O'Brien, and he's letting me shine, and we have camaraderie and yeah. chemistry. You're making him laugh? I'm making him laugh. He's making me laugh. Yeah. The audience is loving it. They were part of a great show. Everything went my way. And I was funny. You know, I was me. So, And you really felt, uh, after it was over, something about I felt like nobody, that memory. nobody will ever bring that up unless I bring it up for comedic value. Um, Until today. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. So it took close to 10 years to put that behind me. Well, I thought you were going to say a few weeks. No. I, mean, I guess there's levels, though, right? I mean, there's... It was raw for a while. You know, I walked around probably with my head down a little bit. Yeah. Because in your head, you think everybody in show business saw that set. You don't realize yeah. that nobody saw it. The eight people that are making fun of you on the internet are eight of 20 that are in your world that saw it. Who cares? But it takes you, it took me a long time to figure that out. Oh, that beginning. Oh, that's just a start. In the years I toured around doing comedy, even at my low level, it was nice to earn a paycheck. Before that, I was a writer. Can't say writer. I was an aspiring writer. I got trained early. You can't say writer when you're not being published. You've got to earn money to put the er on the end of verbs, or people will school you. If you say to a stranger at a party, they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a writer. They'll say, oh, where might I have seen your work? Well, if you ever broke into my apartment and flicked on my computer, might have seen it there. That's where I keep my work. Anyway, the idea of performing stand-up is scary to most people. So even before you get on The Tonight Show, people are a little impressed with you just for doing something they'd never try. But writing? No one is impressed with that. Everybody knows how to write. Of course, there's a range of writing skill, but it's not like in chess where you can be ranked with precision. In writing, who's good and who's bad, it's all a fog. One day Moby Dick is trash, the next it's a classic. And because of that fog, and because so many people want attention and know the alphabet, there are many of no ability who make a go at writing. How can I blame people for assuming an unpublished writer stinks? Most published writers stink. With painting or music, if you got talent, people can see or hear in an instant that you can do things they can't. With writing, it takes a lot longer to figure someone out. So with writing, we delegate the judgment to editors. Get published. Most people still won't read you, but they'll be impressed. But I say... Failure is impressive, too. You've resisted the siren call of nothing. When you do nothing, it's okay to be nowhere. You can think, Man, if I ever got off my ass, I could do great things. What a shame it is that I'm not getting off my ass. 
Oh, poor world, I'm sorry for depriving you. So when you do something, you give up that fantasy. And when you do something and are still nowhere, that's failure. And you've got to fight just for that. Fight to get to your computer, which by the way is a giant fun machine. Movies and music and porn and everyone you know and everything you might want to know. Hmm, I wonder what happens if a poisonous snake bites itself. Trying to work on a computer, it's like sending a kid to do his homework in the middle of a Toys R Us. Do you think a bridge would ever get built if jackhammers had Facebook on them? Okay, so you get to the computer, you resist all the temptation. Now you have to sit there, trying to maintain a playful, creative spirit, despite a head full of voices that say, Who do you think you are? You think you've got something important to say? You don't think someone else has already said this before and better? You've been at this a long time and never made it. What's different about today? You try desperately to tune out this crowd of naysayers and fan the spark of faith that you have anything more than faith. You pile words upon words and strain to shape them into something good, never knowing if you have. And even if you manage to finish something, there's no applause, no pat on the back, no paycheck. No, you send it out to join a torrent of writing by other no-names that lands in a giant heap that becomes the lowest priority of the lowest flunky in that place, most likely another failed writer. And you wait for weeks or months, and finally you get a reply, and there's a moment of hope before you open it, and it's usually no. You finally let go of the fantasy, are finally doing something concrete, and no one can tell the difference. If people notice you at all, they're likely to see you as a bum, a goof-off who does nothing. But you're not doing nothing. You're failing, and that's not easy. Be a little proud, failures. You're off the couch and in the fight. You could say the stories of Melville and Toole and Beethoven and all the rest do more harm than good. That for every genius they comfort, there are countless poor fools encouraged to keep on failing. But maybe that's how it has to go. We don't know in advance who the good ones are. And maybe it takes all of us pushing forward to make the few greats, like the 10 million sperm that won't fertilize the egg, but weaken its walls for the one that breaks through. So on behalf of all failures, you're welcome. Oh, and a snake is immune to its own venom. Failing and Flying by Jack Gilbert Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end. Or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake. That everybody said it would never work. That she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her. The stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you that they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation. The gentleness in her, like antelope standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming. The sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that. Listened to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence, when it was Provence, and said it was pretty but the food was greasy. 
I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. That's the show. Head over to myclonicjerk.com for more info on the show and everyone you heard. Please share your thoughts on the Facebook page or email me at mailbox at myclonicjerk.com. Please get onto iTunes if you haven't already and give us a review. That's how iTunes ranks podcasts, so you doing that helps get the show out to more people. Also, please use the Amazon link on the website. That helps support the show at no cost to you. For instance, to buy Corey McLaughlin's book or Jane on Stars. Thanks to both of them. Also, thanks to Joel Fletcher, who wrote his own book about John Kennedy Tool and was a big help behind the scenes. Speaking of which, welcome and thanks to our amazing new production assistants, Mark Hutchison and Brian Lotz. Thanks to Jimmy Pardo. Check out his podcast, Never Not Funny. Thanks to my Uncle Marty. And thanks to actor Chet Grissom, who did this installment of Plane Crash Follies, as well as the Jack Gilbert poem at the end. I'd also like to wish my dad a happy belated birthday. Every episode of this show has had something, a song or a quote or an idea that I know about because of him. Thanks, Pops. And thank you for listening. I'll see you again soon. Not very soon, but, you know, relatively in the sweep of time. Not that long. I'll see you this summer. Too long, I can always cut it, but I just feel like it's all good. I wouldn't cut any of that. You're fucking lucky I'm giving you the time. <laughs>